Hello and welcome back to Invent Anything. Today we're gonna to cover IP strategy basics. Be one of the very few who even know what IP strategy is. In this episode, we'll cover the beginnings of IP strategy awareness through its definition, then move to all levels of IP strategy that can be defined, learn how this is all based upon good data and supported by the right level of process, learn how intellectual asset management impacts IP strategy and how it leads to the final documentation and lastly, learn about both sides of the coin, large versus small company IP strategy. Inventions keep the world spinning. From fire in the wheel to today's high tech, inventions power change. Turn your inventions into reality. Learn how to get your ideas to market. This is Invent Anything with John Cronin. Today, we're gonna to cover six topics. Topic number one is the definition of an IP strategy. Topic number two is that you can have an IP strategy at various levels of the company. Topic number three moves into the strategy for IP is really based upon data. Then we'll move into topic number four, which is IP strategy and the process, IP process or intellectual asset management process that supports IP strategy. In topic number five, we'll move to how an IP strategy needs documentation and how that then gets linked to the business. And finally, we'll talk about in topic six, IP strategy, small versus large companies. I chose topic number six so that you can actually see the difference. If you're a small company, you see how large companies think about it and vice versa. So knowing both sides of those coins is important. I was considering the kind of audience that might enjoy this podcast. And so obviously for me, the, the initial audience would be those that are even not familiar with IP strategy. And need a primer, so this is for you. For those in small companies who want some basics, this session will hopefully get you started. But for those in large companies, you can see precisely where you need to start working and especially see the need for more sophisticated, what we'll call IP tactics. For those in management or supervisory levels that may wanna get just a brief for an IP strategy, certainly this is for you. If you wanna understand the connection between IP strategy and plans and resources and all that, if you wanna to get to that level, this podcast is a very basic one for you. And for those who want to just sort of start their journey on IP strategy, like I did about 30 years ago, you know, what is it, how to do it, how do you learn it? This podcast has hundreds of, of uh, details in it that you can take back, but there are many, many tactics, more than we'll talk about today. So this is John Cronin from Invent Anything. And coming up, surprisingly, there is little in the literature about IP strategy, less on IP tactics. So we can set up and get you started right away in the game of IP strategy. And you can learn how IP strategy can be done, not only at the business level, but all the way down to the patent claim level. Very good, hold on. You're listening to Invent Anything with John Cronin. Be sure to visit us at inventanything.net. There's information, articles, and more. And you can leave your thoughts and comments there as well. That's inventanything.net. And now back to John and this episode. So let's jump into topic number one, some definition of an IP strategy. First of all, I've taught this for many decades, the definition of strategy from Webster is a careful plan with the strategy towards a goal. Basically, if you think about that, a careful plan with the strategy towards a goal, the idea of strategy having the definition with strategy in it is kind of circular. So let's look into what strategy means. A strategy actually means tactics. Tactics means trickery. Think about playing chess. If you're playing chess with an opponent, you're not going to tell them what you're doing. You're trying to do tactics that basically can allow you to uh, surprise the other side. 
An IP strategy really is a careful IP plan with IP tactics towards a goal. So to merge the definition of strategy with an IP strategy. You know, it's kind of interesting. I, before this podcast, decided to take a look at how many books are written on patent strategy. I found 408. And I said, I wonder how many books are written on IP strategy. It's 171. And then I said, I wonder how many books are written on IP tactics. And there were none. So when you're studying a field and there's only 400 books on patent strategy and only 171 on, on IP strategy and none on tactics, it shows you the gap that you need to jump through in order to start understanding IP strategy. I then do what I do um, a lot. I go to Google Engram. We can type in a phrase and it studies over 150 years, that phrase and how many times it appeared on publications. The word IP strategy started in 1991, peaked around 2012, has been going down fast ever since. Patent strat strategy started around 1965 earlier, peaked around 2007, and it's also finishing fact. So what that says is that patent strategy was used very early in the 60s because patent attorneys would talk about their patent strategy. But then later on, as companies evolved with invention and innovation, all of a sudden an overall greater than a patent strategy, an IP strategy started. Uh, so from 65 to 91, all of a sudden we see in 1991 a peak in IP strategy. So it's just kind of interesting. It shows there's not a lot of books. This thing kind of started in 1965 with patent strategies, then peaked, and then it's been going down ever since. I don't exactly know the reason why going down um, would tell us about the importance of it. I think what, what it tells me is that less and less people really do understand IP strategy. So hopefully this podcast will help you get started. We'll also talk about what IP tactics are. Well, if we just think about any kind of tactics in chess or in football, you know, whether you do a button hook or whether you, uh, you do a capture of a, a, a knight with a bishop to, to fork a rook, there are all these kind of things that you could do. So IP tactics could be at a very high level. A company could say that their IP strategy and tactic is to be defensive or offensive. That's very global, very large. On the other hand, some companies can say that they want to be defensive, but get a little bit more detail with the tactic. Like we're going to do free to operate in front of every product that we release. So the tactic is clearly defensive, clearly using FTO as the tactic. You could say that another detailed tactic could be if you have an offensive strategy, maybe you use evidence of use to go see if your patents overlap with your competitors' products. The reason why I bring up FTO and EOU is you can really go back in our podcast because we have a podcast on each one of those, evidence of use and FTO. There are legal tactics, litigation, best done by a patent attorneys, of course, there, but there are many non-legal tactics like inventing on top of a competitor or writing up enabled publications so to stop others from patenting on top of you. We have a whole playbook of these IP tactics, as I said earlier, I think several hundred of them divided into about 40 different categories. How did I learn about IP strategy? I started thinking about that. Over 1,500 clients in 25 years of doing this, I kind of seen so many different deals where in some deals, there's some very basic strategies. In other deals, you have to get more creative. So in building up years of IP strategy, I kind of recognize that I've learned IP strategy over the years from situations that are from my clients. One of the key learnings I take away in the definition of IP strategy is that business issues will drive IP strategy. We're going to talk a lot about that. So your IP strategy should be derived from your business. Obviously, if you had a defensive tactic, it's probably derived from the fact that you don't want to get sued. On the other hand, if you have an offensive strategy, it's probably derived from the fact that you want to make sure it push others away. Let's talk about topic number two, IP strategy at various levels. And the reason I want to bring this up is 
the word IP strategy could mean a lot of different people. So if you're talking to the business folks, the guys running the company, uh, the people running the company, you might ask yourself the question, uh, is your company an intellectual property company? From a business perspective, do you really believe in IP so much that you're going to use IP to really drive the company? Do you use IP to acquire companies? Uh, how do you use IP? So at the very highest level in a business, you can determine if IP is even part of your company strategy. Uh, there's a lot of businesses that quite honestly don't use IP at all in the business. They rely on their brand or they rely on being you know, um, a fast follower. So they don't really believe in IP. You can use IP strategy in marketing and you can leverage it. Think about trade secret processes that we've talked about in the past. And there's a podcast on that. If you can keep things secret from the market about how things work, you'll show more value. Uh, but on the other hand, you may have a marketing strategy. We want to broadcast your IP. You want to talk about you're the leader, you're the innovator, and here's your 20 patents to prove it. Certainly, when you get to product development, IP strategy is squarely there. So you can link your product development to IP strategy by making sure you have free to operate. If you don't have free to operate as part of your product development strategy, you may find that the first time you get sued, it will be in your product strategy development process from then on. So sometimes it's better to kind of get in front of that as an issue. IP strategy and technology development. Think about it. Should you be licensing in? Should you license your technology out? Should you be looking at your product and making hard to reverse engineer so you can keep that distance from competitors? Should you use trade secrets? How novel is your technology and should the technology be protected by patents? Think about your vendors, uh, your suppliers. Do you want them to learn from you? Should your IP strategy be such that you know how to keep them at bay? And then of course, there's IP strategy and managing innovation. We have a wonderful podcast on innovation versus invention where we talk about inventions one of the greatest tools in the innovation toolbox, but along with the invention uh, tool in the toolbox is IP strategy. IP strategy could be used in many different ways. In larger companies, for instance, it could be used to manage inventors, actually to manage the rewards you give them. There are different levels of IP strategies we mentioned right down to the patent level. You could have your patent attorney have an IP strategy on what types of patents that you're gonna file, systems or methods or business processes, how much you wanna divulge, et cetera. And then you get right down to patents inside of patents or claims, patent claims. What kind of claim strategy do you want to have? Do you want to claim to cover the value chain, claim what your customer is doing, or just claim what you're doing? And even IP strategy gets right at where you want to file patents. Are you going to file patents globally or just in the United States? So you can see that I can talk for a long time on where IP strategy exists. Certainly exists in many levels in the company. Coming up, believe it or not, it's really data and events that kick off a good IP strategy. Once this is understood, it's sort of common sense that wouldn't your IP strategy be best invested in by getting the data in advance than letting it actually happen to you and having to respond to it. One of the things we will learn coming up is this phrase intellectual asset management and how that's used in IP strategy. You're listening to Invent Anything with John Cronin. Be sure to visit us at inventanything.net there's information, articles, and more. And you can leave your thoughts and comments there as well. That's inventanything.net. And now back to John and this episode. Let's move on to topic number three, IP strategy based upon data. It's kind of an interesting topic if you think about it. First of all, I have lots of companies that come to me for IP strategy work. And I tell them, look, from what you just told me in the last 20 minutes, I could give you an IP strategy. It would just be very broad. It'd be off the cuff not based on data at all. Wouldn't it make sense to get more data? Wouldn't it make sense to learn more about IP strategy through what the data is telling us to do? 
data is kind of interesting because it can be an event that changes your entire company. Imagine one day you have a patent suit. That's going to change your company, particularly if you lose a lot of money. So your IP strategy could really focus on in the future of free and operate. So that's a piece of data, right? An event, something that happens that changes your IP strategy. A lot of companies don't have an IP strategy because they don't have any events that drive them. There could be a competitive piece of data that you get that gives you a direct reason for having a strategy. Somehow you find that there's a white space that your competitor is not in and you jump to patent that space to capitalize on it. So that by definition is kind of a, a strategy based upon white space. You can see that getting data uh, can provide a real jumpstart on your IP strategy. So some imagine if you proactively did evidence of use to see if your clients are violating your patents or if your customers are violating your patents. That then could drive the next part of the strategy for enforcement. Sometimes doing an IP landscape with an analytics to understand a broader picture can give you real insight into strategy. So data can certainly inform strategy. Internal data can also impact strategy for, as well. Suppose in your surprise and a new patent issues with very broad claims, all of a sudden that gives you all sorts of things you could do for IP to further improve it, invent on top of it or invent around it, and then start using it in a space for marketing. Maybe something happened in the company. Maybe you got a new CTO or even a new CEO. We've seen this time and time again. We've worked for companies for so long that one company would have a CEO that really believed in IP, would call us in and would get all sorts of work. Then that CEO would be replaced by another CEO because they moved on. And that CEO didn't believe in IP. So it was very hard for us to do IP strategy work with that company again. But then sure enough, another CEO comes in and that company really believes, CEO believes in IP and then IP strategy starts again. So you can see how internal data can really affect IP strategy. External data can also affect IP strategy. For instance, what happens if you're approached by a company asking to take a license? Well, that means that your patents are valuable. So all of a sudden that may recognize that maybe you should develop more patents from an IP strategy point of view so you can make more money. Many times there's an external request that you wanna get acquired. Boy, you wish you had IP strategy before that happened because a lot of times they wanna look at the value of your company based upon IP. Your IP strategy at that point can't be to have more patents really quickly. Uh, it's just to respond to the M&A, but you could see how the external data could affect your IP strategy in the future. You know, financial data can affect an IP strategy. If you think about it, supposing you've posted large profits in the next quarter, uh, you have enough money now that maybe you wanna do more things to develop more intellectual property because you have the money for it. On the other side, supposing you're doing a modest IP strategy, developing patents, et cetera, and then you post huge profit, um, huge losses in the company. So there is no profit, just losses. All of a sudden you see belt tightening and intellectual properties, one of the first things to go. Maybe there's a new technology development where all of a sudden, <coughs> maybe there's a new technology development. John, and John just yep. take, a, take a second. If you want to take some water, I'll just edit this out. Anytime. Maybe there's a new technology development announcement that you're gonna make. And all of a sudden there's a scurry in the company to make sure it's covered with IP. So that internal event is gonna once again inform and drive the IP strategy. Maybe and unfortunately one of your employees left or somehow your key technology just got stolen. 
your trade secrets are now out there and you can't bring them back in. That might drive your IP strategy to install uh, a trade secret program. And finally, wouldn't it make sense to actually consider doing an IP strategy first based upon data so that you're not driven by events? Um, it would just make so much sense from a risk uh, analysis that you develop some of an IP strategy first and get the data in. Because it would be better to have a strategy proactively versus having events drive you. Well, let's now move on to topic number four. This is the area of IP strategy and the processes that support the IP strategy. These would be intellectual property processes or there could be intellectual asset management processes. And we'll talk about that. First of all, I do wanna make a statement that IP strategy is not quote unquote, a legal practice. Uh, hold on a second. Am I, can you hear me? Yeah. Uh, take it from the- um, uh, Top of four. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Do me a favor and go like this. That That's a marker for me, okay. Good. Oh, okay, I see. And anytime. Topic number four, IP strategy and the IP and intellectual asset management processes that support it. First of all, I do want to make a statement that IP strategy is not the practice of law. The practice of law, as I understand it from a very expensive study I did years ago, is that the law, the law lawyers patent attorneys, et cetera. They practice law by writing up patents for you in front of the patent office. And also they can create licensing agreements and things like that. They can certainly go uh, in litigation with you. But the idea of an IP strategy is not part of a, a legal practice. Certainly patent attorneys, IP attorneys can help create an IP strategy for you, but it's not the practice of law. And I bring that up because we need to discuss the processes that support IP strategy. And one of those key processes is called intellectual asset management. Now, small companies would not really get involved in intellectual asset management. So this is more of a larger company um, a practice, but really intellectual asset management is non-legal processes that support IP strategy. IP, uh, intellectual property, uh, is uh, done by patent attorneys and patent agents, et cetera. It is the practice of law and they can execute IP strategies. But likely most companies that perform IP processes, especially the small companies will hire external counsel to do it. So where do people in IP, patent attorneys or IAM, you know, uh, people that are you know, um, facilitators and managing and directors, where do they work in the organization? What we found over the years is fascinating. Um, if there's some major external event of the business that will determine where IP is focused or where the IAM is focused. So if you're all of a sudden focusing a lot of money on R&D, you might develop an IAM function in R&D. On the other hand, if you have lots of legal issues and patent suits, your IAM function might be in the, in the legal part of the business. IP and IAM practices, just as we talked about, uh, actually line up at all those levels. You know, you could have an IAM process for idea extraction or one for patent creation, and that would be a patent process. Patent review committees is an IAM practice. Portfolio management is an IAM practice. Valuations and things like linkages to R&D is an IAM practice. Some of the key IAM practices are things like strategy, invention, linking IP to R&D, trade secrets. Where key IP processes are things like patent prosecution, 
getting NDAs in place, et cetera. Without IP strategy or IM support, IP strategy really just comes down to filing lots of patents and using generally uh, external counsel to file those patents. I have found over the years that IP strategy tends to get better and better learned by experience. So if a person is hired in a new company and you want them to be really good at IP strategy, it would make sense that they've done IP strategy in, a, in another company. It would make even more sense that that person has done IP strategy in multiple com companies so they can see how different companies work on IP strategy. That's why I've had so much fun in my life by doing IP strategy for many hundreds and thousands of clients in many types of uh, areas of technology and various sizes of businesses, et cetera. Once again, IP strategy is a careful plan with the stratagem, which are tactics towards the goal. So the next key aspect is, why don't we talk about IP strategy plans? So coming up, see how the old adage, people don't plan to fail, they just fail to plan, becomes essential in IP strategy, as we'll learn the foundations of linking plans to IP strategy. You can learn some very basic things about the levels of plans uh, that, are that are really common sense. And you can find and might be surprised about how IP strategy is different between large companies and small companies. And I would suggest if you're a large company, you should know how small companies look at IP strategies and vice versa. So knowing both sides of, those of the coin for IP strategy can be very helpful. You're listening to Invent Anything with John Cronin. Be sure to visit us at inventanything.net. There's information, articles, and more. And you can leave your thoughts and comments there as well. That's inventanything.net. And now back to John and this episode. So now I'm going to talk about topic number five, how IP strategy needs documentation and how it needs to link to the business. I've been doing this for a while. And one of my first questions to almost every client is, do you have an IP strategy? Almost everybody will say yes. Really about 95% of the people. I guess they don't want to be embarrassed by saying no. But on the other hand, I ask the next question, is it documented? And 95% of those people will say no. So most people have an IP strategy that's not documented. Early on as a consultant, I thought that this was all about the plan. I thought, why not develop a really good IP strategy and why not lock in a plan, get it written up and get it to them. As a consultant, I love doing that. After several years of doing this and going back to clients three to six months after I developed this IP strategy and plan, I asked them how it was going. I, I, I was totally surprised. They said, well, ever since you developed the plan, it was nice, but we really don't practice it. I was stunned. I didn't want to be working on something that you know didn't have use to the company. And what I recognized as I started getting more involved in this, the reason why they weren't using it is because I failed to do a couple of other things. I failed to get the IP strategy and its plan uh, to be properly resourced and making sure that they had the process that was compatible with the IP strategy with their own company. Because if the company was very process driven, that was one thing, but if it wasn't, and the IP strategy plan had a lot of process in it, they wouldn't follow it. So that led to kind of a maxim. The maxim is the IP strategy as a plan needs to be relevant, resourced, and, and has to be process capable, process compatible with the company. And also another maxim is that if an IP strategy is important, it best be documented. So for all those companies that told me they have an IP strategy, but it wasn't documented, that tells me it wasn't very important. I'll say this again, you know, people don't plan to fail, they simply just fail to plan. And by this, I mean that they don't want IP issues to, ha to happen to them 
uh, as a data event, as we talked about, it would be better to have the plan in place first. So I have some suggestions here. Um, I have three different levels of plans, and this is really for any company. One is to just drop a simple level one plan that has simple IP strategy, simple documents, get it agreed by executives, and get some buy-in. It, it doesn't take more than three or four pages to do that. At least people know it's documented and they can refer to it. And at least you've had conversations about it. You can move to kind of a level two plan as the second suggestion, where now you can get a little bit more sophisticated. Add to the level one plan things like key tactics, the resources that you're gonna to need to achieve those tactics. For instance, if one of the tactics you're gonna deploy, if you're gonna have a defensive IP strategy, and as mentioned, you decide you wanna do free and operate, it would be good to know how many free and operate studies you want to do a year and which vendors you're going to use to get the free and operate studies done and a budget for it. So a simple level two plan, taking a level one plan and adding some more meat to the bones, if you will. You can now take it to another level called the level three plan. Here, you're going to take the level two plan and not only add the resources and the tactics and all that, but think about it almost like for the different things you're going to do, that you have swim lanes of people and responsibilities over time. Who's going to be the owners? of the IP strategy points, who's going to be the executive sponsor. And even for some companies, getting this in front of the board. So those three simple level one, level two, level three plans can certainly get you started. Obviously, if you want to get really involved in IP strategy and planning, this could be a world on its own. You can have a small team of people hired to do IP strategy if it's a large enough company. But this is best done by experts, as I mentioned before. So if you're a smaller company, it's best to kind of find experts that can help you develop that. One of the things you want to do in, in, is to link the IP strategy and other plans uh, to, to other plans in the business. So if you have a business plan, it'd be great to have IP strategy integrated into it. So where in the business plan does IP come? Is it just in the filing? Is it in looking at the competitors? Uh, maybe marketing plans, when you take a look at that, if they have, a, if they have aspects of intellectual property, they, they can link to the IP strategy. We've talked before about how marketing develops websites and documentation for marketing. Uh, if you have an IP strategy for trade secrets, you certainly don't want to divulge trade secrets on your websites or in your marketing plan. So you can see how you can form linkages between your marketing and your IP strategy. And one of the things is that we see a shift here that those companies that embrace level three planning, if they do that enough, we have found that these companies start to call themselves IP companies. And it does happen a lot to us. We'll actually be working with the company long enough to tell them this. Uh, a year later, by doing an IP strategy and implementing the tactics and moving forward, it becomes part of their vocabulary, it becomes part of their business. And then all of a sudden, one day, they start calling themselves an IP company. Let's move on to the last topic, topic six. I want to talk about IP strategies in small companies versus large companies to give you a flavor for this. Smaller companies use IP strategy, particularly to help them raise money. Can they build up and bolster their portfolio quickly so that investors will actually see it? and add value. Sometimes smaller companies use IP strategy to create lots of new intellectual property because they want to be acquired in an M&A. Here, the IP is not just about bolstering. It's about matching the IP of the small company with the acquired company, kind of like a hand in the glove. Smaller companies also use IP strategy to stop copycats. Small companies you know, being copied in the market can be really detrimental, especially copycats that become large companies that are coming into the market. So a lot of small companies use IP strategy to stop copycats. Smaller companies also use IP strategy to, say, to stay out of the gun sites of litigation. I mean, the worst thing that could happen to an early stage company or a small company is they get sued for lots of money. So IP strategy 
will be heavily focused towards defense and freedom to operate. And lastly, another example of the small company IP strategy direction is that they're likely to just file few, fewer patents in fewer countries. So unless they're going towards an M&A where they want to fit the strategy of the acquirer's filing strategy, they'll probably just file in a few countries where they think they could sell the products. So you can see that the IP strategy for small companies is basically bounded by things like defense and raising money and things like that. Here's the other side of the coin, large companies. Large companies' IP strategy is really to have things like trading cards. This means that they have IP that they can trade with. So if they get into a litigation battle with another company, their size is smaller, they have IP to trade back and forth, meaning they can, they can counter suit. Large companies also use IP strategy to keep their markets open and their brand. Uh, keeping markets open means they get free and operate so they don't get sued. But from a defensive side, large companies tend to try to do sophisticated things like stop other companies from patenting. So they may buy companies for their patents, they may publish invention to stop people from patenting. Very different than a small company. Larger companies also tend to use IP strategy to help them defend themselves. And I'll call this the law of numbers. When I was at IBM, uh, we recognized right off the bat when I started the patent factory that we could go from about 1,000, 1,500 patents to 3,500 patents a year. All of a sudden, we had more patents than anybody. We were the number one patent holder in the US at the time when we shifted that strategy. But it turned out that the problem is that when you're number one in patents, uh, what happens if you go to number two and number three later on? So the strategy became part of the brand that we always wanted to be number one. And so many companies try with numbers to have a huge defensive blanket uh, with just lots of patents. One of the things here is that IP strategy for large companies also has to match the global footprint. Where is the company developing product and services and, and where are they marketing them? So their IP strategy tends to be a global strategy of maybe global filings. So we can see the difference between large companies and small companies. Really, it has to do with the scope, but it actually has to do with different strategies. And now we can see if you're a small company worried about large companies or large companies worried about small companies, there is this added thing that if you could have, be a large company, but have an IP strategy that would deal with smaller companies, that might be even further beneficial. What does that mean? You tend to watch small companies invent on top of them uh, or maybe threaten to litigate them. On the other hand, small companies trying to be acquired or staying away from larger companies may have IP strategies that knocks on the large company's brand. In other words, you might do a lot of filings that show that you have more patents in a sector than the large company. So these things play back and forth, but it's interesting to see. So let's wrap up. In uh, topic number one, we talked about definitions of IP strategy. We discussed uh, basically how very little is known about IP strategy, how few books there are, and with the Google Ngram and, and how it peaked in 2007 for patent strategy and 2012 for IP strategy. We discussed the roles of tactics. There's nothing really written on that. Uh, we discussed at high level things like defense or offense, but we discussed also how to bring it down to more specific tactics like freedom to operate and evidence of use. In topic number two, we talked about how you can do IP strategy at various levels. This is the idea that you can link IP strategy to the business level or the market level or the technology level. We also talked about how at another level, say in marketing, you might develop specific tactics for marketing like trade secrets or free and operate. We also discussed lower level strategies that are right at the claim level and right at the filing strategy level. So you can see how IP strategy is employed at different levels of the company. We then talked in topic number three, the interesting relationship between IP strategy and data. We discussed how data influences IP strategy. I said that I could do a five minute IP strategy for you in 
if I heard of what you were doing in 30 minutes, but that's off the top of my head and maybe that I have the expertise to do it, but my goodness, wouldn't you rather have data? We talked about how data can inform strategy. How, for instance, a great financial position might give you more ability to file more patents or how a terrible financial position might actually stop the filing. We talked about you know, being reactive, like new events, like you get sued, and now you want an IP strategy for that. So certainly data, competitive analysis and all that could inform the IP strategy, maybe best done proactively. We discussed in topic number four, how IP strategy has related processes, intellectual uh, asset management processes and IP processes. We discussed that IP strategy is not the practice of law, but we also discussed that there is from an IP strategy, certain legal aspects, things like filing patents and licensing, et cetera. But there's also non-legal processes, things like intellectual asset management. We discussed things like how intellectual asset management can be done from idea extraction, port portfolio management, valuation, et cetera, and all those other areas where the IP legal processes come in at the patents, NDAs, and things like that. And we also talked at, at in topic number four, how IP strategy is really best learned for, through experience. So if you're going to hire somebody for IP strategy, um, it's probably better to have a person that has worked for many companies for IP strategies so you can get that spread of thinking. In topic number five, we talked about how IP strategy needs documentation and it needs to link to the business. We discussed that a lot of companies say they have an IP strategy, but almost none of them have it as a, a documented process. I discussed even my background, how I thought that that was the whole Shangri-La of documenting the IP strategy and the plan, only to find out if it wasn't properly resourced and properly integrated into the processes of the company wouldn't work. You could take that one to the bank. We also talked about different levels of a plan of an IP strategy I point out at least three levels of how you can get started. Level number one, just being minimal agreement with the team, minimum direction that you have an IP strategy, maybe three or four pages, and, and basically get agreement, get the discussion going. That's a level one plan. A level two plan takes it to the next level. We start adding specific tactics, like free to operate, evidence of use, inventing around, inventing on top of, um, you know, doing some other tactic that we'll mention in the future. But you can move from that to getting even more involved with the level three uh, plan from an IP strategy. We do level one, level two, and now we're adding things like resources, people, swim lanes, checkpoints, and maybe even have the board of directors signing off on it. And finally, topic number six, we've looked at the IP strategy from what it's like to be a small company and what small companies do for IP strategy versus large companies for IP strategy. When we contrast these, we see it couldn't be more night and day. We see that small companies are more focused on things related to money, like raising money. So they might bolster IP for that, or they may be fo very focused on being acquired. So they may be focused on that, a copycat, so staying away from litigation uh, and maybe just filing a few countries because they're small. On the other hand, the other side of the coin, large companies, very different. We're talking about things like trading cards, keeping markets open with lots of FTO studies. We had some clients do hundreds of FTO studies uh, to make sure that their products are always free and clear. So they wanna have high defense. They might do that with the law of numbers. They might wanna have lots of numbers for lots of trading cards. And also the law of numbers would suggest that brand is associated with number of patents. You know, a very large company having very few patents will, will be spotlighted right, right, right off by the retail investors. So things like maintaining brand through numbers is another part of large companies. So there you have it, the difference between large companies and small companies making the argument that you should understand both sides of the coin. So if you're a small company, you should know how large companies are thinking and vice versa. 
because at some point, small companies and large companies either come together in an M&A or some litigation. Uh, so it's best to know each, each side of the coin. So uh, to just wrap up, please subscribe. If you like this, come join our blog of Invent Anything and listen to our new series for Inventors at Work. Thank you.